thing. Two things of note. Y'all come on in. Everybody come on in. Make yourself comfortable. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. Someone will hand it out. In fact, a wonderful lady in our class who had been in our biblical literacy class brought me lesson number one that she's translated into Spanish. And she wants to try and translate these. I thought, bless your heart. Who on earth would spend that much time on one of these lessons? And I thought, well, I guess, you know, I write it so she can translate it. But no, that's, that's a lot more work, in my opinion, translating it than writing it. And uh, uh, so we're going to experiment with this. And those of you who speak Spanish, who might be interested in a Spanish lesson, let me know and we'll try and get it to you. And you can look at it. Philip Sanov, his email address is P as in Philip, N as in nothing to do with his name, and S as in Sanoff at Lanier Law Firm, L-A-N-I-E-R Law Firm. That's his email address. Uh, very handy to know because he's like extremely useful all over the world, but he's got access to the lessons and can email you past lessons if you'd like them. Let me give you an idea of where we're going and then uh, 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 we'll get into class today. Today is part two on martyrs. We talked about martyrs last week. We're going to talk about them again this week. My goal is to talk about them one more time next week. And then we'll finish with martyrs. After we're done with martyrs, I want to talk probably for two weeks about some early church heresy. After we deal with some early church heresy for a couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about Scripture and how the Bible came together. Okay? It's important that we get each of these stages out of the way. It's important that we deal with heresy because one of the reasons the Bible came together was to confront heresy that was creeping into the church. And so uh, the early efforts at putting the Bible together were in fact efforts to try and, and uh, either uh, support heresy or efforts to expo- expose heresy for what it was. So we'll spend two weeks probably on the heresy. Then we'll start looking at how the Bible came together. In the process of that, those of you who have read the Da Vinci Code or who think you may see the movie, or who have friends who have read it, or who have questions about it. Part of the premise of this fictional book deals with the idea that there were lots of scriptures and writings that never made it into our Bible. And you can go to bookstores and find books on the scriptures we never knew, or lost Christianities, and things like that. Um, uh, We will deal with those uh, uh, and, and explore those in the process of those classes. I don't know how many classes we'll have on, on the Bible, putting it together, but it will probably be at least two or three, and we'll just see how it goes as I get closer to writing those. But this morning, we're going to look at martyrs. Last week, we looked at early New Testament martyrs and what happened to the apostles and other martyrdoms that occurred during that first century. What I want to do this week is pose a question for you. And the question is simple. Why were Christians persecuted? Why was it that martyrdoms were taking place? Why did Christians get killed in the the early church? That's the question that we want to address this morning. And in the process of addressing it, I've divided up the persecutions into three different categories. Uh, uh, the lawyer in me has to classify things. And so I classify them in three different areas. And uh, let's look at those areas briefly, and then we'll go into more detail. First, there was early church persecution was basically Jewish persecution. At the hands of certain aspects of the Jews, uh, there's room, yeah, y'all just come on in, make yourselves at home. 
um, <clears throat> and certain aspects of the church were, were being persecuted by certain parts of Jewish, uh, the, the, the Jewish uh, uh, structure, the Jewish power system. Now, it's important here. Christianity, uh, and uh, in the name of Christianity, I should say, has been guilty of persecuting Jews. In the name of Christianity, there has been a lot of anti-Semitism that's occurred. And that's not right, because Christians have never been in the persecuting business. Christians have been the persecuted. But even within the Jewish tradition and the Jewish heritage, it wasn't all of the Jews that were after the Christians. You've got to remember, the early Christians were by and large Jews. But there is Jewish persecution of the church first, chronologically sort of. After that, we'll look at local persecution. Just persecution that arose in various places and districts for various reasons. And then the third area we'll look at is official government persecution, where the Roman government, the emperors themselves, persecuted the church. As we look at these, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to think about why the persecution was taking place, but take it a step into your life. Because I want you to be thinking, what is it in my life that brings about persecution? It's not going to be, I doubt many of us have been persecuted by the Jews. I doubt many of us have suffered from local persecution in the ways that we'll look at the early church suffering. And I doubt that many of us have suffered per government persecution in the ways that the early church did. But that doesn't mean that the motives and the reasons and, and some of the persecution hasn't been felt by you and I or won't be felt tomorrow. So try to, to take some of this, uh, the next step as we're going through it, and, and personalize it if you can. We're going to start with Jewish persecution. Last week, we looked at the book of Acts. The earliest persecution, the first martyr in the church was... Stephen, and that was at the hands of the Jewish ruling powers. And so we looked at Stephen, we looked at others that were persecuted at the hands of the Jews. We looked at Paul. Paul was persecuted at the hands of the Jews. Now his martyrdom didn't come from the Jews, it came from Nero. But we do know that uh, Paul says in first, or 2 Corinthians 11 that he had received 39 lashes five times at the hands of the Jews. There's never 40, a little trivia here. Jews were not allowed to administer 40 lashes. The locals couldn't. Only the Romans could administer 40 lashes. So the Jews would administer, when they were punishing, 39 lashes. In fact, if you read Paul's uh, uh, 2 Corinthians in the Greek, while the translation generally says 39 lashes, he didn't even write it that way in the Greek. He wrote it 40 minus 1. Because they weren't allowed under the law to give him 40 lashes. So they gave him 40 minus 1, as many as they could. That happened five times. You can read in Acts 14 and Acts 17 about Paul getting uh, 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 persecuted by the Jews. Why would the Jews be persecuting Paul? Why would they persecute other Christians? Paul says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. We're going to look at why. But we, we, if you were in our biblical literacy class, when we covered this, we talked about the Greek word for stumbling block. It was scandalon. And we get the word scandal from it. And what it literally was, was the trigger of a trap. 
that would cause the trap to, to, to fall down on the, the animal. Okay? The animal brushes the trigger, the trap falls down. And that's what Paul says Christ crucified was to the Jews. It was a trap that would, would fall down on them and, and, and expose them for who they were. They would brush, they would, they would trip over it, they would stumble over it, and it would hurt them. Why was Christ crucified then a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, let's look at a little church history and, and uh, look at it in light of Jewish history. There is a Jewish rabbi who taught at the time of, of uh, the early church and at the time of Christ, and this is actually, I've, I've given you a lot of the references and quotations in your handout. And so you've got the reference to this uh, uh, in your handout in Pir Kaboth. But what the rabbi said is, the entire world sits on three, three legs. It's like a three-legged stool. There are three legs for the entire world. What are they? The whole world sits on the law, the temple, worship at the temple, and kind deeds. Chesed in the Hebrew. It means a, a covenant loyalty, a kindness. But it's the same concept that Paul would teach about as love or charity in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the same concept. So the, the Jewish rabbis taught the entire world sits on three equal legs. The law, the temple, worship at the temple, and kind deeds. Now, in comes Jesus Christ crucified, Christianity. What does it say? Jesus Christ crucified in the early church said, the world doesn't sit on the law and the temple and loyalty, covenant loyalty, kind deeds. The law, Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. The temple, Jesus Christ is the true temple. God literally dwells within Jesus didn't literally dwell in a house made with hands. Kind deeds, yeah, we still have those. That's what the cross of Christ is. The ultimate loyalty to a covenant, the ultimate deed of love and kindness. So there is an immediate conflict between uh, uh, Judaism on one side and Christianity on the other just in what our faith is about. And that's going to breed persecution on behalf of the Jews. Let's go a step further. The Jewish power structure itself depended on this Jewish system. The rabbis, the high priest, the temple worship, all of the Jewish power structure was built on these three legs of the stool. And when you start whacking off those legs, the power structure is not real happy about it. How else was Christianity offensive and a stumbling block to the Jews? Well, Jewish had an ethnic pride. We, we were the Jews, they taught. We were God's chosen people. We were a holy race. We were set apart. All of that's true within limits, but what the Jewish faith never realized is the reason they were set apart, the reason they were holy, the reason they were God's people is because through them, God was bringing the Messiah for the world. Through the Jews, God was revealing His law so we would understand the Messiah. Through the Jews, God was revealing His law so we would understand the need for a Messiah. The Jews' specialness was not DNA. The Jews' specialness was God's prophecy that through those people that He'd kept to Himself, He would defeat the schemes of Satan. 
And that would come through Jesus Christ. But it would be a blessing for all of the world. And that's very offensive to the Jews who had the pride of being special for DNA reasons. Does that make sense? Very offensive to the Jews. Jews got real upset. It was one thing to let in a few Gentiles. It was one thing to say, okay, uh, Louis, you're a Gentile. You can come in, but first, you have to become a Jew. First, we want you circumcised. We want you to become a Jew. We want you to, to take the Jewish initiation. And then, once you become a Jew, you can be a Christian. And Paul is the one who really took the bull by the horns here and said, that's not it. You don't become a Jew to become a Christian. Jesus Christ came to, for all nations to redeem all of mankind, not to make everybody a Jew and then redeem them. That was offensive to the Jews. The Jews were jealous. We read in Acts 5, they were jealous because... Can't you see the jealousy? Can't you see the jealousy? I'm telling you, Christians experience jealousy today. There are people who are jealous of people of faith. And the sad part is, is it's not because the people of faith are anything special. I have had someone come up to me in the last two months of my life and say, I am jealous over what you have as a Christian lawyer. This is a, a pagan lawyer. And my response to him was, want to be a Christian lawyer? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not doing anything special. I'm not anything special. But I know the love that our God has for me. And I know the love our God has for you. And I'd love to tell you about that. The jealousy, because don't you see, they were jealous of Jesus. Because Jesus, do you know, he feeds 5,000. Most of them couldn't get 5,000 to come hear him. But this non-trained rabbi feeds thousands of people because they can't go home because they want to be near him. They also were scared. The Jewish power structure was scared. That's a lot of power. I've always commended Demon. I've always commended Wade Liberator for letting this class exist. Did you know in some churches, the leadership won't let a class grow this large because the numbers are too concentrated? This church has always been concerned about meeting people's needs. And if there are 300 people that need to be in here because it's what meets their needs, praise God. And we get nothing but support from this church. And, and that's a wonderful thing. Because it's not always that way. If you go back and you think about the way Paul was teaching, Paul was what the Jews considered, plain and simply, a troublemaker. And that's the, why they tried to get rid of him. There was a lawyer in the New Testament called Tertullus. And Tertullus, in Acts chapter 24, comes up to, to, to make the speech, the prosecution speech against Paul. And he comes in front of the governor, and he wants Paul ridden out on a rail. And his speech is one that says, Governor, we have had a long peace under you, but Paul is a troublemaker. He's been stirring up riots all over the world. 
And, and, and the, 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 the indictment that the Jews were bringing at that point to the Roman authorities, because the Roman authorities were interested almost more than anything else other than maybe collecting taxes. They were interested in peace. When there's not peace, they have to send in their soldiers. If they've got to send in their soldiers, their soldiers can't be guarding the front over at Gaul. It costs money. It costs lives. They've got to keep the peace. That was the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome was extremely important to the rulers. So it's a very damning charge to say, hey, Paul is a troublemaker stirring up riots. That's a way to get a guy in trouble. And uh, that's what they would argue. As we go through the second century, some of the Jewish arguments against Christianity, they say this is a bogus religion. Let me tell you why. The Jews know there is one God. Say it three times a day, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, our God, Adonai Echad, our God is one. It was said three times a day by a good Jew. One God. One God. And then along comes Christianity, and they're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They got three. And so the Jews would say, and some pagans too, the Jews would say Christians are out of their minds. But to the Jews, do you understand, if you, they could even get good Jews to go along with this. Not all of them had a malicious heart. I mean, can't you see the Jewish rabbi standing up teaching on a Sabbath and he'd read the Old Testament about how chasing after idols and other gods had caused God's wrath to come down and it was the reason the Jews weren't in the Holy Land and now we've got this new aberration of Christianity where they worship Jesus as God in addition to Yahweh God and this is an idolatrous religion this is a a, 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 a cult I was on an airplane, I was flying, there was a 14-year-old boy, he had his yarmulke on. In Hebrew, his name was on there, Shaloma, which is Solomon. He doesn't talk to me, he doesn't look at me. I look over at him, said, hey Solomon, how's it going? <laughs> he looked at me and says, how do you know my name? I said, it's on your hat. He said, uh, aren't you Goy? Which is Gentile. I said, oh yeah, man. <laughs> he said, how'd you read my hat? Or my yarmulke? I said, uh, I'm Goy with a degree in Hebrew. <laughs> and uh, he said, really? I said, yeah. I said, so tell me about yourself. I started talking to him. He's in this uh, 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 New York City uh, Jewish Hasidic almost school. I'm the first Gentile he's ever really talked to in his life. He keeps kosher in what he eats. Very, very elaborate rules. I'm talking to him about it. I said, so like at school, what do you study? You study calculus? You study other? He has a religion class. I said, is it Torah? Which is, you know, the, the law. He said, well, this semester we're studying cults. And I'm thinking, oh man, I taught, a, I taught like an eight-week course under Charles Mickey on that. And when I was in uh, a law school at his student center, I thought, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses and, uh, you know, the, the Moonies. I know this cult stuff. I said, so really? I said, which cults are you into right now? He said, well, we're really only studying one cult. 
I said, which one? He said, Christianity. <laughs> I, that, we're the cult. Okay? Think about it. The Jews were saying you worship in the temple. And when the temple was destroyed, all their efforts were to rebuilding the temple because it's the temple where you worship. Don't worship on the high places. Don't worship anywhere else. That's what got our nation in trouble. Worship only at the temple. And along comes Christianity that says worship in spirit and in truth. It's not a question of where you are. You worship in spirit and in truth. The Jews had the sacrificial system. The Jews said you sacrifice these animals for these reasons and those animals for those reasons. And along comes Christianity and says, it's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All the rest are gone. They just pointed the way to Jesus. They were foreshadowing Him. In the Old Testament, the teaching was, you've got priests and you've got rabbis and these are the ones who will tell you about God and this is how you'll learn about God and this is how God will minister to you. In the New Testament, under Jesus, you have Jesus as a high priest and we're all priests. It's a priesthood of all believers. And you go to God not through a rabbi. And you don't go to God through a priest. And you don't go to God through some Levite. You go to God through Jesus Christ. And Him alone. The Jews had these dietary laws. That kid in the plane I was telling you about, Solomon, he was explaining to me that they had a real liberal element in the school, but he wasn't part of the liberal element. He just needed to let me know. And I said, I'm understanding. We have liberal elements too. Tell me about your liberal element. And he said, well, you're aware of the fact that under the law, you're not allowed to mix meat with milk. I said, yeah, I'm vaguely aware of that. I said, you can have the milk first, but, but once you have meat, you can't have milk for like some time period. He says, that's right. He said, so the question we have in our school is, if you're cooking a stew, and next to the stew you're mixing a salad dressing that's like ranch. And a drop of the milk that you're pouring splashes out into the stew. Do you have to throw the whole pot of stew away? He said, now, many of us would throw that stew away, but there's a torrid liberal element in our school <laughs> that says if you've got 60 parts meat to one part milk. In other words, if there's 60 drops of meat juice for every drop of milk that might splash in, watered out. You can keep the meat, the stew. I said, those liberals are going to take us out. Um, those dietary laws are there for the Jews. And Paul and the Christian church comes along and says, you know, you want to follow those dietary laws, that's a lifestyle choice. Keep your conscience clean and don't offend your brothers. The Jews are being taught, we're God's people. The Christians come along and say, wait a minute, God's interested in the whole world. And so there's persecution at the hands of the Jews. Okay? Not just at the hands of the Jews, but let's talk for a minute about local persecution. And we see some of this in uh, uh, the New Testament. We also see it in some early church writings. One of the biggest problems of local persecution is money. Money. Donald Trump, theme song, 
to the apprentice. What is it? Money, 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 money. Okay. That's a big deal. Christian persecution because of economics. Now, the way it typically took place back then is that there was an idol system. And they'd have all these different idols, and uh, you'd have to sacrifice to them, and sometimes you'd buy some of them, and you'd buy little figurines, and you'd go and sacrifice me. There are all sorts of economic interests tied into the temples. Okay? Well, what happens when people start following Jesus instead of all those idols? It's a, a, a restructuring of, uh, of uh, income. Okay. All of a sudden, you're sitting there and, and you are fifth generation idol maker. Okay. And you sit there and you start thinking, Shazam, we're having trouble. Demand is diminishing. It's all them Jesus freaks. They quit buying our idols. Or they quit buying our meat that we're sacrificing to the animals or to the, the gods. See? And, 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 and when economics get involved, um, people can get real downright persecuting. Okay? I don't know if you've seen that or not. But when economics are involved, it, it, as, as my grandmother said to me last night, she used the phrase, that's when people quit preaching and go to meddling. Think about it for a minute. It's one thing, you know, it's okay if you want to do, but when it starts affecting me, hey, you've quit preaching and gone to meddling. I don't want you meddling in my life. And, and that's the idea there. Not only economics, but there were lots of false rumors about Christianity. Um, you know, Christians in, in the early church had closed communion. Now, by that, I don't just mean that if you came into the gathering and, and the Lord's Supper's being passed out, unless you're a Christian, you're not supposed to take it. I mean, they locked the doors and, and the people who aren't Christians are on the outside of the doors. They're not on the inside while communion's being taken. Closed communion, according to a lot of local people, was cannibalism. We have a number of New Testament, uh, not New Testament, early church writings to this effect from inside the church and outside the church. Inside the church, they're saying, what a farce. These people are blaming us for cannibalism. Outside the church, they're saying a bunch of cannibals. We've heard about it. They kick us out, they lock the doors, and then they eat some guy's body and they drink the blood. You know, these people, these Christians, they ought to be annihilated. They're a bunch of cannibals. And, and not only that, the church, it's a secret society. Nobody really knows what's going in there. I'll tell you what I think. This is what people were saying. Some people say, it's incest. It's incest. I mean, they're all like <laughs> brothers and sisters. Brother this and sister that. And, and, and they, they do all sorts of weird things. And you want to know the sad part? Some of what the outside world was saying was happening within the church was happening in the Christian heretical groups. Not, not real Christians, but people who claim to be Christians. The heretics. Some of the people we'll study after we finish martyrs. 
they were doing bizarro, wacko things, claiming all the while to be a Christian. I don't know if you've ever been persecuted because of someone else's perception of what a Christian is, but it's amazing. Last week, we had Alexandra Pelosi visit our class. She's doing a special for HBO. I can tell you a little bit about it now she's not here. She's doing a special for HBO on religion across America. Her mother is Nancy Pelosi, the, the uh, head of the Democratic... Yeah, that lady from California. And, and, and Alexandra Pelosi was here with her video camera because she's trying to figure out and do a special for HBO that'll air around the election this fall on religion across America, and she'd heard about our class. So she came in here to tape it and to visit. And it was very interesting because she said, you know, let me tell you what I'm finding out. She said, y'all aren't like we all think you are. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you're not all... And, and I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm not going to throw out any names, because if I throw out a name, someone would say, well, I happen to like that guy. But she said, you're not all like so-and-so. And I said, no, of course we're not. I said, Christianity is like this uh, bowl of stew. <laughs> and I said, you got your corn, you got your potatoes, you got your celery, you got your meat, you got your juice. I said, not everybody's corn. Some of Lewis's jokes are. <laughs> Well, not everybody. Some of us are just meat potatoes. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and the idea that we're not what everybody always thinks we are will lead sometimes to persecution. People will automatically assume that Sandy, because she's a Christian and she goes to church and she does a newsletter for her class, she must be this and this. Debbie Riddle's in our state legislature. Patricia Harless will be in our state legislature. Some people may assume that just because they're there and they go to church, they must be this and this. And it's not true. Their hearts sold out to Jesus. But that doesn't put us in some cookie-cutter mold. Those false rumors were a source of, uh, of uh, attack and martyrdom. The heretical groups that I'm talking about. Let me give you a statement that was put out about 150 or so A.D., about Christians, okay? And this is by a guy who claimed to be, in the know, an eyewitness. He said the following, they love one another before they know one another. Now, we were in that as Christians, we're thinking, amen. But he means it in a really bad way. He's talking about incest. He says it's a religion of lust. They call one another promiscuously brothers and sisters. He says, they explain their ceremonies by reference to a man punished by the deadly wood of the cross. Now, I've left out a few sentences that I've reproduced in your paper, but he says, come on. Anybody that's following a criminal, somebody who did something so bad that they got killed on a cross, is worthless in themselves and can't be trusted. He says, now about the initiation of novices. And I didn't put up here what he says about that because it turns my stomach and we have some children in here that don't even need to read it. Of course, now they're going to take the lesson home. I'm going to find it. It's in here. I know it is. <laughs> so your parents have to explain it to them. But it talks about basically killing an infant as part of the initiation process. It says, on a solemn day, they assemble at the feast. 
And it talks about how supposedly we are doing cannibalism. This is someone outside the church talking about the church. Do you wonder why they might go along with the persecutions? Government persecution. Uh, We talked about this some in uh, biblical literacy, so I'm going to go through it quickly. But there was a nasty emperor named Nero. Nero comes to power in Rome. On July 18th in 64 AD, if we had CNN on, we would be hearing about a fire that's going to burn in Rome that started. It started down near the Roman Forum where all the stalls were. And they're made out of wood. And all of these stalls where they sell spices, they sell oils and things like that, catch fire. And it's a tinderbox because all of the drapes and all of the fabrics that drape the, the stalls, they all catch fire. The spices burn profusely. Probably smelled pretty good for a while. But then the oil catches, and then the timber catches, and then it just strips the ability of man to control it. And people get caught on fire and start burning. And, and the, the, the lives are horrible. This fire burns for six days. Rome is divided at the time into 15 districts. There are a million people that live in Rome. Eleven of those districts are destroyed. This makes 911 look small. This is tantamount to uh, 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 Katrina and New Orleans, except the loss of life was much more significant. And, word spread around, it was not a natural disaster. It was started by somebody. So understand, you've got death, you've got destruction, and they didn't have insurance. Oh, my stall's burned down with all of my goods. I'm going to go to the good hands people and get uh, Shalasi and Allstate or somebody to pay me back. They did not have that. This city, the homes, the goods, the the, 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 and, and, and everyone wants to know. Everyone wants to know whose fault it is. The rumor is it's Nero's fault. Nero didn't help it when he comes and he tours everything and says, Oh, this is horrible. But there's a silver lining in every cloud. I can build a brand new palace for me right here where the slums used to be. Let's get started on that immediately, huh? That didn't help things. So so the word starts filtering around. This is Nero's fault. Nero had his people doing this. And Nero needs a scapegoat. So Nero blames the Christians. I mean, after all. The Christians were always talking about the world's going to be destroyed with fire. Right? 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. Christians say the world's going to be destroyed by fire. I'll bet you they did this. And Nero starts persecuting the Christians out of this. Nero, at his circus, which was a stone uh, area, Nero's circus is where many of the martyrdoms took place. Those martyrdoms, by the way, Nero's Circus is now where St. Peter's Basilica is. If you ever go there and and go to the Vatican like Steve Taylor is going to do, you can see that is where uh, 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 the, the martyrdoms were taking place. And the martyrdoms were horrible. Nero would take Christians and he would sew them up in the skins of wild animals and then take dogs that hadn't fed for a week and have the dogs start chasing the Christians and eat them up. Nero would take Christians and have them dipped in pitch and put on poles. And in fact, as one Roman historian wrote about it, 
and, and to the Roman historian's credit, he wrote with bitter taste over this, but he says, on one evening, as the sun's going down, the Christians have been impaled on poles and dipped in pitch, and Nero has them lit while he drives his chariot all around, inviting the public to come watch the spectacle. It is at this time in history that Peter and Paul suffer martyrdom from the hands of Nero. It is at this time in history that Peter writes his letters. It is at this time in history where Peter says in 1 Peter, Christians suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but we repay evil with blessing. Stuns me. Domitian becomes emperor later, uh, not immediately after Nero, but uh, toward the end of the first century. And Domitian is uh, the guy who is emperor when Clement wrote his letter that we talked about, when John wrote Revelation and talked about the persecution that was happening in Asia Minor. It was Domitian who said that, uh, uh, you know, Jesus had said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and talking about paying taxes. Domitian took it a step further. And he said, I'm going to tax you, but I'm giving you a ritual tax, a ritual tax that you're going to pay in homage or out of worship to the god Jupiter. And a lot of Christians said, time out. I'll render to Caesar what's Caesar's, but I ain't giving Jupiter squat because Jupiter is no god to me. And that was a source of a lot of persecution. After Domitian, there was an emperor named Trajan in the early, 200, or early 100s, 110, 115 is the time period we're looking at. This is actually a picture of his, uh, of his market, his forum, uh, as it exists today. It's in ruins. But I want to talk about what Trajan did with a fellow named Pliny, or Pliny, depending upon how you pronounce his name. There were two Plinys. There's Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger. The Younger is a nephew. And the Younger was born on Lake Como. So instead of looking at Trajan's forum, I thought we should look at Lake Como. It's a lot prettier. So that's our background to talk about this. Pliny the Younger was sent. He never really left Italy except for his military service, short service over in Syria. He finally leaves in his 50s, I believe, because he's going to Turkey, just to the southern part of the Black Sea, to administer a couple of provinces, Pontus and Bithynia, for... Emperor Trajan. While he's there, Pliny is carrying out the requisite uh, uh, killing of Christians. And Pliny's one of these guys who wrote letters all the time, and we've still got his letters. He said to the emperor, he said, whenever he had a question, he'd write the emperor. He said, hey, emperor, I got a question. And he like writes them all the time. I'd have fired the guy. I'd have said, I need a self-starter over there. Not some guy that's going to write me five times a day. Okay? But hey, I'm not an emperor. Um, Pliny writes the, the emperor over everything. And he writes about Christians. And he says, look, I don't know what to do about these Christians. I've been killing them. Here's what I've been doing. I've been giving them a three-pronged test. I'll bring them in. I'll say, are you a Christian? If they say yes, I'll say, I'm going to ask you again. And this time I want to warn you, if you are, I kill you. Okay, are you a Christian? And they say yes. And then I give them third time, final answer. Okay, and if they say yes, then I have been having them executed. Unless, of course, they're Roman citizens and I'm not allowed to do it because they appeal to you and I dump them your way. But sometimes they balk. 
And I say, ah, oh, Jiminy, I used to be a Christian. That was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I'm not a Christian anymore. And Pliny says, I've asked them, I've probed them. All right, well, what exactly are these Christians doing? Because I've wanted to know their crime. I wanted to know if, if we're punishing them and killing them just for the label, or are they actually doing really bad stuff that's criminal? He says, but as many as I'm killing... They're not like going away. They're more and more and more. Let me show you some of his letter. He says, I've been pressing them, trying to find out what they're doing. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to some crime, not, oh, I swear I'm going to kill somebody, but not to commit fraud. Not to commit theft, not to commit adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. And when this meeting was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of food. But even that was ordinary and innocent food. No truth to the rumors of killing people and babies. The emperor wrote back and he said, look, yeah, you know, we need to keep killing them. But don't seek them out. If they get brought up to you and then they're brought up and they're a Christian and they fail your three-prong test, then go ahead and execute them. But, you know, you don't have to go out and aggressively find them if they're not causing trouble. And, oh, if someone brings you anonymous lists, you know, I'm not going to tell you who I am, but I saw Ray Tucker at church. I think he's a Christian. And it's some anonymous, it says, don't, you can't prosecute anybody off an anonymous thing. So just leave them be unless you need to. And that's the way he did it. Now, what I'd like to do next week is I'd like to take this the next step. And I want to talk next week about the mindset of a martyr. I want to talk, I, we're going to look at Ignatius of Antioch and we're going to look at Polycarp. Two Christian brothers that died in the 100s. Ignatius died about 112, Polycarp in the 150s, I think. These, Ignatius wrote seven letters on his way to be executed. So within weeks of his execution, an execution that he sees is coming, that he knows he's going to, he writes these letters. And what's in his mind is incredible to me. And Polycarp, we're not only going to see the events uh, that surrounded his arrest, which moved me to tears, but we're going to read and look at the actual martyrdom itself. And that's the way we're going to sum up at least this period of martyrdom. Here are our points for home. We're going to start with the scripture, 2 Timothy 3.12, that Charles pointed out to me. In fact, this is Paul writing, Paul is about to face his death at the hands of Nero as well. Paul says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone. Now, not all with the death, but everyone is persecuted. So these are our points for home in light of that. As we follow God, it will win many people to Christ. By our love, not by our shooting them with a doctrine gun, by our love, they will be moved to find out what could ever motivate so pure a love. But following God's going to annoy and offend other people. And it's just going to happen. 
So persecution should not surprise us. But persecution should never stop us. We do what's right and what's best before our God regardless. In fact, the surprise should be if we're not being persecuted. If we go through our life never having any persecution, it, that's when we need to say, am I doing, what, what's going on here? Because when you stand up for something that's right, you get persecuted, don't you? Okay, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you as a whole room full of different people with different needs and different directions in life. It is my prayer that your Holy Spirit will minister to each person in here and touch each one of us. That you, Father, will move in our hearts to, to recognize the honor it is to be your child. Because it is a great honor. It is a life honor. There's nothing greater in life than to know you and the Son that you've sent. And Father, to the extent we've ever let anything be greater in our lives, we confess that as sin. We are sorry. And we pray that you will take the number one spot in our hearts and minds and lives, more important than what we eat, more important than who we see, more important than who we're seen with, more important than anything, Lord, that you will reign supreme in our lives and we will give you our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.